It is hard to imagine a sustained advantage arising from dissatisfied employees who lack commitment. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Squeezing the Orange of Social Science, a podcast hosted by myself, Akin Omobitan, and Professor Dan Cable. On each episode, the two of us pick apart, peer-reviewed and published social science papers, and we squeeze them for their best bits so that you, the delightful listeners, do not have to sift through pages and pages and even more pages of academic literature. What's up, Dan? How you doing, Akin? I'm feeling really good. That was three pages and pages and pages. Did this one kind of get you down a little bit? You know what? Like the, the language of this one made it feel like there were more pages on top of the pages. There was like... So there was a bit dry. It was a bit academic. Huh? Yeah. There was just some lingo, which just sounded a bit kind of like inhuman. But we'll, we'll get to that because there was a theme that I was sensing, which even brought some life to that. Good. Um, good. So yeah, what we got for the peeps then? Okay. First off, let's uh, talk about who it is. It's Joseph Raffi and Russell Koff. And what they did is wrote a paper in the Academy of Management Journal about the micro foundations of firm-specific human capital. That's the first phrase that probably tripped you up a little bit. Yeah, let's, you know what? And yeah, and if we just reel off the rest of that title yeah. as well, yeah. when do employees perceive their skills to be firm-specific? And what I understood by that, actually, you do a great thing, Dan, at the yeah. top of these episodes where yeah. you just give like a nice little overview of what's what's cooking. So yeah, do you want yeah, to slap one of those down? Yes, I can do this one really quick, which is at the top level, there is a theory that says if Firms give workers skills that are only valuable at that firm. They lock them in. That theory is almost completely wrong when you get in the psychology of human decision-making. Hey, there you go. The sweet spot, man. Squeezing the orange. The way in which we're behaving in order to get the desired outcomes is not the way that we should be behaving. Give an example of that, too. I mean, this actually, I was thinking about it in my own world. So Harvard is kind of a unique joint. Like, they really like case writing, for example. All the other places I've been, they don't really give a lot of value, and you certainly wouldn't get tenure for writing cases. At Harvard, they use it like crazy. It's a huge part of how they make money, and they just expect you to do it. So if you go there to Harvard as a professor, and then you learn this arduous task of figuring out these cases... And you get really good at that. And let's just say then you want to leave Harvard. Everywhere else is like, eh. I mean, you can do them. Like, on your, as a hobby. But like, we're not gonna, like, we're not gonna, like, pay you or think that's a really cool thing. And that's so, in my field, that's what we mean by firm-specific human capital. And did any of that stuff come through, like, for you? As you were reading, you probably had never heard of firm-specific human capital before as a phrase. This is why I found it quite a choppy one to kind of read through. But overall, I was just a bit like, ah, so my layman's understanding of it is I go get a job and the skills that they teach me at that job are only really useful at that organization. So I end up with a bunch of skills, which if I now want to go and work somewhere else, they're just a bit like, what the hell is all of this? So it's like some of like the systems yes. that we might work on, yeah. the, the processes yeah. that are kind of like applied, even like internal qualifications. Yeah. I've noticed this on LinkedIn a fair bit, actually. People posting certificates which are issued at their place of work so it's a bit like i don't really care what you would like that we don't work like anyway yeah Yeah. so that this this whole idea is just like it's really relevant yeah it's super relevant because okay here's the way it's supposed to work i am not an economist everybody i'm a basic psychology person but one of the things that's kind of thrilling 
about economics is you sort of use maths and proof to be able to make predictions about the world. Sometimes what happens is when psychology starts taking a look at those predictions about the world, they're like, yeah, but these are humans. Like, they're not using that math model. And so you've made a load of assumptions there that real people don't think about. And that's when it gets interesting. That's what I like about this study. By peeling back those assumptions, which are quite kind of old-fashioned. They kind of come off as old-fashioned. Yeah. And then you get kind of modern. You look at that. Yeah, but nobody acts that way. Let's look at the data. And then the data flip it. I think that's actually kind of cool. Oh man, this is this is the joy of the, the this paper. The joy of reading it was as as dense and as much as the language didn't flow through me like a refreshing glass of Coca Cola. Uh, <laughs> as much as that wasn't the case, as I went through it, I was a bit like, "Oh, this is making so much sense." This idea of someone who works somewhere becoming part of the furniture. When you have people who have worked somewhere for maybe like five, ten years, and their friends are like, "You really should look for something else," and they're a bit like, "Oh, but like, I I love it there," and and I'm you really know, they, I, yeah, there. I'm really valued there. Yeah. Okay, so this is great, Akin. Did you get the part where? economics-wise, that might deliver a sustained competitive advantage for the firm? Yes. I think that the idea is pretty fun. Okay, it doesn't work, but the idea is pretty fun, which is if you get all this value within the firm, and then they start paying you a bit more because, like, you're really valuable there. Yep. It kind of gives you, like, golden handcuffs. Yep. Because then you're like, I want to go to Intel and work. They're like, yeah, but we don't need any of that stuff. You're worth about half. Yeah. And it locks you into the situation, but in a pleasant way. Yeah. And to use a bit of an economic term, you potentially become a depreciating asset. Like, because now you, what happened? Okay, man, we're going to have to get into this paper, but this stuff is, I'm getting excited. I'm getting excited. Why am I getting excited about firm specific human capital? So this is, this is the danger. The danger is what could happen is you end up getting a job at a place and they invest in you. They, they do like on the job training, you know, they employ you, you get your, your salary, you get some promotions and you become really valuable, but only to them. And this is this is the flip now. The flip now becomes, and this is the golden handcuffs. Within that organization, you're highly valuable, but you're not you're not valuable enough to go somewhere else with your skills and become more valuable. So once the organization realized this, yes. they're a yes. bit like, we yeah. don't need to pay this in. What are they gonna do? Leave? Yeah. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. And even if they go somewhere, we could train someone up to their level. And we'd probably pay the next person less. So it's like you just become like almost a prisoner. Yeah. And that's pretty interesting. It's, um, I guess, a little sad from an individual basis. The way the economists have treated it, though, is if the firm can pay you a bit more than the competitors would pay you, but then not as much as you're worth, mm. then they derive that value. Yeah. And that's where the competitive advantage would come yeah. in. Because they're kind of ringing you mm-hmm. more than they're paying you. Yeah. You're putting your finger. That's the pulse of firm-specific human capital. And why conceptually it lets a firm win reliably. This is why so many people <laughs> are unhappy at work. Because like, if you're... 
like as cold as it sounds, as cold as, co- as cold as as cold as it sounds. If you're in charge of headcount and you're in charge of like you know salaries and you've got to get things within a specific margin, this is the kind of thing you want to be able to use to your advantage. Like you want someone. It's like a game of chess. Yeah, you want someone who's been at yes. that organization for ten years. And you know them very well. You know their moves. You know the way they and dance. they know the firm's dances. Yeah. They know how to get things done yeah. at three times the pace yep. if they went to a competitor. Yep. And that does happen in the literature, by the way. There's study after study showing that the stars in one firm, when you take them out and they get hired by a competitor, performance declines rapidly. Mm. Because the games that they learn how to play and the culture they learn to survive in just starts to mess them up when they go to a whole new one. Yeah. Pretty, again, that, this is all fairly interesting stuff. It's this, just, it's the, the economics of it and like the mathiness of it yeah. and the proofs and the sort of like putting the formulas in there. It kind of throws you. It makes for a tough read if you're used to psychology, isn't it? Matt, like it, we're, we're going to get into this paper, I swear to God. We're already we in. We're, we're, in. we're, we're perfect. We're, we're like, we are actually knee deep in, but we're going to give you guys a bit more, a bit more context. What is fascinating about this is, especially like I've got like a bit of a fixation with the annual review process. And what this is, this is what's so amazing about this paper is what you can do if you're running an organization, you're the leader of, let's say, 100 people. You create an ecosystem within that 100 people that does not relate to what goes on outside of that organization. And what I mean by that is annual reviews come around. And what you do is you're going to put everyone on a scale of, let's say, one to 10. So now they're competing with each other. So now if I get like if I score like a seven and that gets me like a 3% raise, I'm a bit like, well, who scored a 10? And the person who scored 10 might get like a 5% raise. So I'm a bit like, okay, well, I'm doing really good because I'm not like in the, the, but it's a bit like compared to the the market, like when you compare yourself to the market, you might be getting shafted, but you might, you become so, yeah, you got this tunnel vision of what's going on. And they do explore this in this paper. So like their hypotheses, like what they were looking at specifically in this paper is when it comes to employees, how long have you been at the organization? How much on the job training have you got? And also how, how like happy are you with your job? Like what's your kind of like job satisfaction? Commitment. Yeah. yeah, Commitment. Yeah. uh, yeah, That's the word. So they're looking at those three elements and what do they do in relation to how people feel about the skills that they have in relation to the organization they work for, but also just the wider job market. I'm not sure if there's anything else you want to to add to that, Dad. It's everything you just said. And what we need to remember is the big assumption that firm-specific human capital makes is that people have accurate insight into their firm-specific knowledge. But it's just a judgment. This is where the whole rub, the whole tension of the paper comes down to. You've built an entire theory as if it was an objective fact how much firm-specific human capital. It all depends on how much they think they have. And so what they did is they got these two nice, sweet, fat data sets. Yeah. <laughs> you got really... You get really excited about a, a data set, Dad. <laughs> it's like Christmas around here. <laughs> well, here's what I really think is quite strong. They go and they get this Korean labor and income panel study called the CLIPS. 
And it's a longitudinal <laughs> annual survey of 17,000 people. And even if they remove all the people that make no sense at all, they still got about 16,500 individual year observations. It just gives you an enormous amount of power to, to kind of look at and decode what's happening under there. Yeah. And just, yeah, if we could just say a bit more, Dan, just about these 16,000 yeah. observations as well. So yeah, just to kind of give, I guess, if you could breathe a bit more life into, into what that means. Well, the longitudinal element means that they track people across time. And so they're asking people on an ongoing basis, let's say it's every four years or every five years, answer these questions about your, like, here's some questions. Like it would say, how useful do you think your knowledge or skills which you learned from this job would be to other jobs if you move to another workplace. Yeah. And so right off the bat, if you're asking that across time, you're, you should be seeing that as you stay at a firm longer, that number is going up because you should be gathering more firm-specific human capital. Yes. It becomes an empirical question instead of like a theory. Yes. Okay, so that's one good example. I don't know. Do you want? Do you want it? Should I throw it? In oh no, that's, yeah, that's okay. that's just wonderful yeah. because, like, um, yeah, just to give like an idea of like just kind of like the the pings that yeah. this kind of like sample set was kind of like ticking. Yeah. Off. Here's another one. Then I'll throw another one out there. So second one is they ask um what's called uh, organizational commitment, and these would be questions like um. This is an organization that I would never want to leave. That's the sort of a question that you'd ask around commitment. Uh, a commitment kind of a question would be like, does your identity bond with that organization? And again, as you stay longer and as you learn these firm specific human capital, the theory would be that that would all move together. Yeah. You know, I don't, we don't really need to get into like all the math, but what they did is they controlled just about everything possible. I mean, they, you know, age and race and demographics and, you know, how long you've been in your career. They controlled everything out from this and they ran the regressions and they essentially found that the results matched the predictions out of cognitive psychology and not out of economics. Mm. It's essentially the reverse of what the theory would have predicted. Yeah, and I wonder if, like, a lot of these theories, because I wonder, and you, you might be able to help me out with yeah. this, Dan, like, I wonder if a lot of these theories are based on a different way of working. And I guess what I mean by that mm. is, if you've got, like, a lot of it, people working on, like, a farm or in a factory, like, you know, with the industrial, like, yeah. revolution where people had very specific roles and you used your hands for them and you could, like, you could measure, like, okay, one person can hit this nail four times in one minute and you can get this really good thing to say, okay, then this person then could take that nail thing to a different factory and then hit a different, like, yeah. you know, hit a different yeah. thing. Whereas when we then started transitioning where it became more kind of, like, offices and laptops and, like knowledge and meetings work. and knowledge work. Where you're like solving customer problems and every day is like a new set of tasks. Yeah. That's pretty interesting yeah. to think and about. Maybe it used to be true. Yeah. Maybe when they invented these theories, it was a good mirror of reality. Yeah. Because like oh, the issue, yeah, because the issue, if I'm working in, in a if, in a different setting, so if the setting, if the intention or the, the basis of my work is what I, is what I produce physically, that's very different from the outcome being how I interact with other people. So like relationships, 
a, a very mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. thing in work now in terms of like people are having like how much time on like meetings, they're collaborating, they're generating ideas, they're talking to different clients. So you've got like just the nature of it yeah, is different. It. And so then the, the psychological impact is, is different. So it's like we might be using a, like the wrong measuring stick yeah. for yeah. what's actually yes. going on. And, and so what some of the things that they're finding here, I'm just, I'm thinking like, let me get a couple of the results out and we'll jump to that second data set as well. Because then they, this is this Korean data. They then went and got a whole different panel data yeah. set. So just, I'm going to throw a couple of things out. Contrary to what the theory would have predicted, they learned, for example, that tenure, which should be directly positively related to firm-specific human capital, was negatively, strongly and negatively related to that. And so it basically shows that the longer you stay, somehow you get it in your head that you aren't firm-specific and that actually that knowledge is really generalizable. And that completely would befuddle the theory. Here's another one. They found that... um our results provide evidence that on-the-job training, like training that's given by the firm and only is relevant to that firm, that it is um, not positively associated with uh, firm-specific human capital. And there's one other thing I wanted to throw in there. Hold on one sec. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the new, it's, it's the, it's the other one. It's the other one that I was going to, here it is. It's a one unit increase in commitment decreases the probability that the employee perceives their skills to be moderately or highly firm specific. So the more committed someone is yes. to the firm, the firm, like they, they think, Oh, I'm all bonded. I'm wed to this firm. Yeah. They're actually 10% less likely to say that their few, their skills are firm specific. Yeah. It's the exact opposite yeah. of what the theory would have predicted. And so yeah, in, in the in the paper here, they I guess they they label this as like cognitive dissonance. So they discuss cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Uh, there's also the choice supportive bias. Uh, and there's also the false consensus bias. So do you want to do you want to like pick up on any of those let me just pick up on one of them, Go for which it. is like the cognitive consistency one. This is like Festinger and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's this classic stuff that suggests that we as humans have a need to have a certain consistency in our beliefs. Yes. And if we do something like pledge a fraternity and they make us do really bad stuff like squeeze turds in the toilet or like march around the campus naked, make us feel really bad. It makes us feel like, oh, why am I doing that? And then we we solve the problem for ourselves. It must be really valuable to be in that fraternity. And so we make our minds do these gymnastics where we add value to something that isn't really all that valuable because otherwise we feel stupid. <laughs> Sometimes, people, it's great to feel stupid. Sometimes. Because yes, yes. <laughs> if you've done something quite stupid, go ahead and just feel it. Like... Let reality in, people. But all of us, Hacken, you and I, we don't have the ability to do that because this is the way human yeah. brains work. Yeah, this is the life hack of yes. this episode, yes. everyone. Like, this, this is the life hack. Like, if you've been turning up for work, like, day in, day out, and deep inside you, you're a bit like, I'm pretty sure I don't like this job. 
it's okay to feel stupid. It's okay to be a bit like, maybe I spent X amount of my career moving in the wrong direction. Because what you're doing otherwise is simply living a lie. And you are fooling yourself. In this paper, what they're showing is you then fool yourself into believing, my skills are very general. I just don't want to leave. Yeah, this has got like toxic relationship (laughs) written it's got toxic relationship written. Have you have you ever have you ever like have you ever have you ever hung out with like a couple and just been a bit like, oh my god, every time I hang out with this couple, all they do is fight. They fight, they bicker, they throw shots at one another, they're clearly not happy. Yeah, they're definitely not But in if love. you were to ask them, oh, it's oh, the love yes, of my life yes. and I couldn't imagine. Get life. old together. Yeah. We're gonna get old together. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have seen that phenomenon and, and unravel it, yeah, many times. Because I've, I've like, there's so many like, uh, and you know, this is this is totally anecdotal. But like, just like when I chat to people, it's ve- you can very quickly tell who doesn't like what they do, but they won't say, "I don't like my job." Like they won't say it. What they might say is, "My boss sucks." Or they might say this job is real stressful. Or they, they might just use all of this language, which is to get away from saying, oh, it's actually my fault that I keep putting myself in a situation that is causing me to be unhappy. Yep, 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 yep. I've seen it and I believe that it is a little adaptive, which is probably why the brain does it, to make us like kind of feel better about ourselves and the world and so on. But it can lead to these really counterintuitive results. Yeah. That like the economists are left scratching their heads because they're like, well, no, the theory wouldn't have predicted that at all. Like that that's the opposite of what all of our nice models would have said. It's like, yeah, because people's decisions are based on their psychology, not your math. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I think that that, what we just said right there is the most important part of this study. A lot of the rest is like a cool domain in which to study it. Yeah. But the actual finding that economics is really psychology is a pretty important one. I think that would make a lot of economists very angry. Maybe. <laughs> but I think that that's what study after study. These days they're calling it behavioral economics, which yeah. is like psychology. Yeah. But I think that it probably is fairly frustrating to run all these maths and proofs then have it be exactly wrong. But anyway, we move. What should we say? The last thing I was going to bring up is there's a second iteration where they got this NLSY79. It's another panel uh, study. It's a longitudinal survey that uh, tracks employment histories of 12,600 men and women. It's done by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. So we've got a Korean sample and then it's replicated with a U.S. sample. That's pretty strong. Even after taking out all the people that like weren't relevant for like they didn't work enough years or they weren't full-time work and so on. Still this huge sample of people and they were able to basically replicate the results in a whole different country using slightly different measures, but still like really externally valid measures. Mm. So all I think we'd need to say there for the sort of quality of this, uh, if you want to just sit back and say, squeeze that orange for me, it's just really good methodologies to be able to replicate it with a whole new data set in a whole new country. Yeah. That's really, I could go through all the results, but it kind of is just like they showed it again. Oh man, this is, this has been a blast. So I guess like, um, just like some closing, some closing words for both employers and employees. 
So, and this is just to say that there's this kind of like, there is the idea that the, the, the longer someone has been with an organization, uh, the idea seems to be that they will be more committed uh, to like the the specific skills and just the organization itself. So just this idea that like someone has, because someone has been here this long, that makes them a greater yes. resource for yeah. the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Probably doesn't. Be careful. Yeah. Be wary. <laughs> and I'm going to leave it with going back and bookending that original quote that I gave from the paper about it's hard to imagine a sustained advantage arising from a dissatisfied employee who lacked commitment. Mm. What I think is really cool about this is here, it says this, our findings that firm-specific human capital are associated with a lack of commitment. This is a big problem. It's a significant challenge for the strategy literature because they completely overlook that finding. So it's like a stark contrast to their basic assumptions. And this means like, here's another quote, a workforce that is steeped in firm specific knowledge, but dragging their feet at every juncture mm. probably is not going to be a source of competitive advantage. Yeah. And, and just to, just to say this, uh, last part before we close, cause like, I think for me, it's like somehow a lot of these papers, I can link them to relationships. And the way that I kind of see it is if you're in a committed relationship, you still want other people to think that you're sexy. That's, that's, that's pretty much like. And it's probably good for both it's parties to great. feel sexy. Yeah, it's great. So what you want to be doing is, and I believe this became quite trendy in the last few years. You want to be training your team so that they're good enough to leave you. But the organization should be good enough that they want to stay. That's so it. just think about it in a relationship. Like you want to be sexy enough as an employee. So just think that like from the employee perspective, you want to be sexy enough on the dating market. You can get anybody you want, but you want to still be with someone that you want to stay with. Woo! <laughs> nice summary. Thank you a lot. That was really fun. <laughs> what a delight. Uh, okay. We are on iTunes. If you're rocking with this on iTunes, if you could leave us a shiny five-star review, that would be fantastic. We're getting lots of love on LinkedIn. I didn't think LinkedIn would be the place where we people really groove with us, but it's where all the smart, intelligent, beautiful people Thank are. You. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. So if you do see us uh, post Squeezing the Orange on LinkedIn, if you could like it, if you could share it, if you could drop a comment, we've also got a LinkedIn uh, channel. It's new. We're building it. It's called Squeezing the Orange. You can find us there. I guess there's little else to say at this point. Goodbye. Enjoy the rest of your lives. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>